Blog Talk Radio. Witches on the Broom. Every year, this very night, they all come out. Gives me a fright. You hear them cackle as they fly by the moon. Witches, witches, witches on their brooms. Watch the skies on Dragon's breath and I have newt, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. Hear them sing, witches, witches, witches on the wing. Watch the sky on Halloween. The strangest sight I've ever seen. Another edition of Archivist Bets on Sexy Witches, a podcast from the Geek Girls perspective. And I am that girl, the head huntress. Welcome back. It's been over a month and a half since our last podcast because, frankly, we were just really fucking busy for spooky season. Uh, Halloween horror movie marathon madness was going on, and that was absolutely crazy. And also, I was doing a lot of things, and also starting a new job, and all this other life-changing shit, um, so, but here we are, we're going to do a Halloween <laughs> recap, because, yeah, there's a lot to talk about that we've done in the last, since last time we've been on the air, and then, amazingly, at 10 o'clock, we have the one and only David Trumbull, who is that you say? Well, David Trumbull is a storyboard artist, and just finished working on Wendelin Wild, starring Key and Peele on Netflix, uh, the new stop animation directed by Henry Selick, uh, the first one yeah. in like eight years, I believe, since he's directed a film. It's been a while. And uh, so we're really excited to have him on to talk about stop animation, storyboards, and whatever the hell he wants, he wants to talk about, because, you know, we're the sexy witches. We like to geek out here. But first, let me introduce the sexy witches. First, we're talking in the LA area because everyone tends to be down there now, is my uh, Enchantress of Nevermore. Raven Jasper Hawk, but not only is she my longest co-host, second longest co-host on The Sexy Witches, because technically Aaron's been on here longer, um, he, she also happened to win the Halloween Horror Movie Marathon Madness, uh, so she is a champion! So please welcome to the show, champion Raven Jasper Hawk. Welcome, you're on with Sexy Witches, how are you doing? Ah, I'm doing it in a dream of nuts from all the witchcraft movies. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, we can talk about that later. 
Yeah, we'll talk about Troma's witchcraft movies for sure. Uh, you are so yeah. welcome. You and so, everyone else uh, are so welcome. You're, you are worse for wear, but you have survived. And not only did you survive, you won after usually being a judge. But here's the funny thing, Raven, right? Not only were you the champion, you actually had to end up judging because the judge yeah. of your team had medical issues and someone needed to take over. So you were judging oh. and you were champion. Was it Rich? Maybe, but maybe not, actually. Uh, so welcome. How you feeling? Are you feeling better? I'm hanging in there. So like two months ago, I fainted and fell on concrete, and my knee is still hurting from it. And I finally get to see the knee doctor tomorrow. Um, and that means potentially I can be somewhere else than bed soon. So that's exciting. Oh, Sit back and relax for a few minutes while I bring on the other sexy witches. The one that's a little closer to home. The one that's in the south like me now that I'm in Georgia. Uh, please welcome to the show the dirty southern sorcerer, Nathan Hamilton. Welcome. You're on with sexy witches. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, everything between. It is good to be back. I am the voice of violence, the one and only. I have no equals. The rest are just sequels. <laughs> <laughs> And we have much to talk about as well, uh, but we'll get back to it in a few. And last but certainly not least is my partner in crime when I'm in the area, L.A. area, the one and only Winslow Leach, yeah, a.k.a. Aaron Kogan, a.k.a. Captain Big Tail, whatever you want to call him. Just don't call him late to dinner. Please welcome to the show Aaron Kogan, the warlock of Orange County. How are you doing? You're all sexy with um, I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to be with y'all tonight. Ah, uh-huh, I'm so glad this is going to be a fun show tonight. Um, and before no we get started with what our recap, I wanted to mention the song I led off with because this year's madness theme was "Monsters of Lore and Witches Galore." Was "Witches, Witches, Witches" by Andrew Gold. If you don't know who he is, you certainly know his biggest hit. Spooky, scary skeletons, which happens to be on the same album. So that's, that's, that's actually not his biggest hit. Oh, it's not. His biggest hit and his claim to fame, other than an incredible Halloween album, is he is the man who wrote the song "Thank You for Being a Friend," the theme song for oh, the Golden Girls. That's oh. right. I forgot about that. So Andrew Gru- <coughs> Excuse me, Andrew. What Gru- a range. Yeah, I know, right? right? <laughs> so, excuse me as I cough up my whiskey. Um, I am currently have on mute uh, behind my computer the first Capitals game I've been able to get in of the season. That's how busy it is. I haven't been able to watch hockey. Um, it's Pittsburgh against Washington, and Pittsburgh just scored two goals in four minutes. Fuck them. Fuck them in the air. Anyway, huh. so they're they're up three to zero. So uh, I was spit taking. So excuse me there. Uh, but I'm. But we're not here to talk hockey. We're here to talk Halloween. So, but I usually, I kind of like, I'm going to lead off with um, Aaron tonight because usually I go with Aaron because he always has so much to do. I tell him, all right, Aaron, tell me about everything you've done. (laughs) You have 10 minutes to do it, right? Well, I'm going to let you start with the L.A. shenanigans. So what have you done in the last six weeks? Well, um, most of it was devoted to Halloween, but you know, uh, and the madness. 
but uh, I did actually get in a few really cool things. Uh, We got up to uh, Universal for the Universal Hollywood uh, (coughs) scary nonsense that they do and had a hell of a good time with that. I went to Not Scary Farm. I went to the Oogie Boogie Bash twice, and uh, I even went to a signing. Uh, one of our premier uh, local comic book stores in Los Angeles, Golden Apple, does this annual collection of Halloween tales. Um, I want to say it's been going on for better than a decade now, but uh, all of it is headed up, uh, all the stories are headed up, by John Carpenter, and uh, he does a very limited signing. And this time I got to attend and meet the very lovely uh, John and Sandy Carpenter, and they were delightful. Uh, I was dragging my poor friend Petra, who is visiting us from Germany. Uh, they detected an accent and started talking with her in German, and it was just really neat. That's awesome. I uh, was watching, um, you know, you know, uh, the Shout Factory app on on Roku. Yeah. They have a bunch of streaming yeah. channels. One is uh, Shout Cult, and uh, over the weekend they were showing uh, for Godzilla Day, which was the, uh, yep. November. They've been showing in order um, the uh, original uh, Toho sh- uh, show. I think it's the Showa era, right? Was it the Showa era that we were watching? Uh, Honda, but. I, I think the ones that uh, John Carpenter selected were directed by Honda. Yeah, they're all his Shira Honda movies. But I, but he showed uh, I I caught but he's been hosting them. We're hosting them. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. So uh, John Carpenter's looking kind of old though. I hope he's okay. There's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> but anyway, I, he did Gidra the Pig. He did actually uh, War of the Gargantuans too, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, but, you know, he did Gidget the Three-Headed Monster, which is by far my favorite of all the Godzilla movies. Um, here, here. Nathan and I just went and got, we went to Godzilla Day. We'll talk about that when we get to our turn because, oh, my God, I am so excited for 2023. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so yeah. what else do you have to talk about, Mr. Kogan? Um, that's pretty much it. Um, went to the signings. Um, there were a number of events that I didn't get to this time around, uh, including the uh, haunted car wash and goofy golf. But next year, I'm telling you, damn it, next year. Yeah, next year. Excellent. Uh, but uh, it's funny. I saw a review of Halloween Horror Nights versus the one in Orlando. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it sounds like she's on the Hollywood one a little bit. So everyone raved. I kind of about, felt it too. They said it was it was it was light on the on the on the design this year, um, and but everyone also said, and and you can vouch because you were there, uh, that the uh, Death Eaters section was open, and it actually was very cool uh, to see yeah. the Harry Potter stuff included in this year's Horror Nights. Yeah, usually that is walled off to us, and this year. The Death Eaters were out, and the dark mark was projected above the castle. And uh, that, if, if you're a fan of the Potterverse, as I am, that was really cool to see. And, yeah, I agree that the design was a little weak, and the scares were, you know, people popping out at you. It, it, 
It didn't have the ingenuity that past haunts have had. But you also got a good trade-off because I heard this year's Terror Tram was off the chain this year. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Terror so, Tram was really cool. Um, it still had a little bit of the same uh, uh, people with uh, gas-powered uh, chainsaws chasing at us, but it was really cool to see the original props and sets from Nope. You know, well, chainsaws freak me out, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's to Nathan's enjoyment. Uh, so, oh, my God. I'll talk about that. Well, excuse me. <laughs> Carry on, Aaron, for a bit while I hack out along. I'll be right back. It's much the same. Um, I did want to say that um, having done Oogie Boogie Bash twice, um, it is pricey. But if you spend the time in the lines with the characters and, and, and you're into, if you're a Disney freak like I am, and you, you really enjoy the interactions, uh, I got to talk to Mr. Knight, one of the alter egos of Moon Knight, and the cast member doing him was just so into it and so much fun. Um, the same with Bruno, um, uh, who I told. We don't talk about Bruno. Well, no, I have no, to no. talk about Bruno. I met Bruno. Um, I told him I, one of the reasons I really loved him was the rat telenovelas. And he told me all about the new one he's planning. And that kind of stuff is not something that you normally get visiting the parks. And it's pretty effing cool if you're a geeky fan. Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, meeting John Carpenter, I haven't yet do, done that. So that sounds like uh, the the highlight of your spooky season. That and I can now say that I have trick-or-treated at Disney World, Disneyland, Disney California, and Knott's Berry Farm. Because during the day, they were doing uh, little uh, trick-or-treat stations for the kids. And I said, hey, can I get one of those bags? Because it, it, it had Snoopy on it. I needed it for my collection of Halloweenania. And they said, sure, and they put some candy in it. So I'm, I'm counting that as trick-or-treating. Well, that's awesome. Oh, yes. And Not Scary Farm was on par as always? Yeah. Um, they had. It, I, I don't know how you do it. Every year, somehow, serendipitously, your themes that you pick months ahead of time uh, dovetail really nicely with what's going on. Uh, there were elements of everything for bonus points in what Not Scary Farm is doing. A hell of a lot of bonuses at Universal uh, Hollywood uh, Horror Nights. Uh, there was even a maze at uh, Not Scary Farm called the Grimoire. And um, that one had a really, really, really good setup. And then not much as far as the maze itself went. And and that's something I've been hearing a lot more about their mazes, and, and maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. I did hear that the one standout of all the mazes in the L.A. area was Halloween Horror Nights La Rona. Uh, for some reason, that yes. one was, was the best of any of the haunts uh, down in the L.A. Oh area. Oh, my God. And, of course, that the giant scary The ad. giant statues they had reaching out towards you were amazing. Really cool. Really enjoyed that. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I've been doing my homework. Uh, Nathan, <laughs> are you on twice? What's going on? I don't I think so. I am. Remember, I, remember I'm one and only. 
Uh, I have you. I have you listed twice. Did you call back in? Uh, yes, I did. Technical okay. difficulties. Ah, uh, technical. Ah. Can you? Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Okay, good. Because I hung up on the other <laughs> meeting. Because yeah, there can only be one. We can't handle two of you, dude. No, I don't <laughs> think so. All right. So hey, you got to decide which Nathan to hang up on. That's always a tough decision. <laughs> oh, oh, it's like that moment in Star Trek where you don't know which Kirk to shoot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> shoot him. No, shoot him. Hang up on him. <laughs> I'm the real Nathan. That's uh, what the real so, Nathan would say. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, I know, unfortunately, Raven, you spent, you spent most of the hot, spooky season flat on your back, uh, but – but were you able to get anything uh, other than uh, the madness in this year? Um, no, I was not. Oh. <laughs> no, I, was not. I watched. I was watching stuff from about seven in the morning to sometimes three in the morning. Because yeah. my yeah. family is so hot. And um, I've watched more witchcraft movies now, I think, than any other <laughs> subgenre. I really do feel like an expert in the subgenre now. And that's happened before where, like, I if I've done, like, the, all the binges, um, where it's like, wow, I suddenly should get a merit badge for that specific <laughs> minutia <laughs> of horror. Um, well, and I, class action really I, have, I have I have done my part for everyone's horror education. Well, I mean, but, but <laughs> you did win the madness, and uh, yeah, and but in particular, the the witchcraft movies that you are mentioning are the witchcraft series that's mostly directed by trauma, uh, which are the mm-hmm. sexy, they're sexy sex witchcrafty kind of films. Though so one of them on Tubi, I think it's the eleventh one. Was edit all the sex was edited out, which is like, what's the point? Uh, and it's but, seventeen <laughs> minutes. And it's seventeen minutes long now. Yeah. So, but tell me, <laughs> what, what, is, you is know, that you, the one that had uh, Darcy the male girl in it? Yeah, oh, no. she was. Was it that one? She was one of the stronger actors in that one. <laughs> yeah, that's saying something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, see, so, I think I think some people misunderstood that whole thing. I think. <laughs> I think people somehow thought that I think those are good movies. No. No, absolutely not. Some of you may or may not realize this, but I have a little bit of a sadistic streak. And I kind of wanted to see if I could actually get people to watch all of that. And lo and behold, some of you are crazy enough to have done it. I just want to hear you say that you think they're movies. That's that's what I'm holding out for. Nathan, you got called out though. Like in Raven called you out in your in in her summary of those movies. Summary. Those, I gave uh, you a monologue. I was reading Chris, a few of the, a few of the summaries Chris, were calling Chris, me out there. What the hell, Nathan? One of our better players, one of our our more devoted Mads fans, also called him out by name. Um, in his mm-hmm. summary, um, I think John did too. Uh, but um, in all, in all fairness, I made a meme I don't for him. Any, I don't think anyone's horror experience is really, really complete <laughs> until you've seen all the witchcraft movies. Now, even I didn't watch them all back to back to back to back to back. 
<laughs> I'm crazy, but I'm not stupid. But... Well, I'm really stupid because after I was done with all 16 movies, I was thinking, you know, these are only 90 minutes long. Why did I watch them all in one go? <laughs> I could have <laughs> split them up a little. <laughs> so, so there was this odd consensus that the 14th movie was almost good. Uh, yeah, which I, which I thought was funny, um, you know. But it wasn't just <laughs> almost hitting his stride. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't just witchcraft movies. Uh, you know, you watch any movies you want during the madness. It doesn't even have to be horror films. Which, by the way, once again, wasn't it surprising? Like, yes, I often pick these the the, the themes at least by May, but sometimes I already mm-hmm. know it as early as February. Matter of fact, I already know next year. Um, yeah, and it's going to suck. Um, and, oh my God. Uh, yeah, so, uh, but, but, uh, you know, you, you watched, but we, we had a binge of Ray Harryhausen films this year because of, uh, Monsters, those are fun. And those are, you know, old school awesome. I'm really glad I exposed a bunch of people to that. And, you know, honestly, Nathan, I'm glad you got the heat because I, after, it's been over two years since we did the Nature's Bites back, and I'm still getting shit for making everybody watch Tanya's Island. So as well you should. <laughs> so, uh, oh, Vanity well, still doesn't know how shirts work. More pokeballs, for that matter. Uh, so it, it, I will say one thing, and, and Tanya's Island's just as guilty because uh, we also watched a lot of Inquisition films, Mark of the Devil, yeah. Witchfinder General. Yeah. Boy, are those films rapey. Like, a lot of which movies yeah. are super rapey. Um, they also mm-hmm. have a lot of screaming. Like, okay. yeah. One of my favorite moments throughout the entire madness occurred when our illustrious head hauntress was watching the movie Alucarda, which was one of my picks for the secret films. And, okay, I will tell you, you know, the witchcraft movies are not good. Alucarda is a damn good movie. Um, she was sitting there on the couch watching it, and she looks at me and says, there is a lot of screaming in this movie. And I didn't say anything. I just walked over to the shelf, picked up my copy of Alucarda, and handed it to her so she could see right there on the cover the, quote, more blood, loud screaming, and nudity than any horror film I can think of. Uh, like they told you right there on the cover what you were in for. It wasn't wrong. Oh, I have fair. not seen more screaming in a single film than I think in that movie. The last 15 yeah. minutes is nothing but this girl spinning in a circle, screaming in her bloody murder, while all these nuns catch on fire. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, but it also, I recognize two or three lines from that movie that were sampled by Ministry. Uh, you know, so like, oh, that's where that's yeah. from. Yeah, one of the There's also quotes from White Zombie on there. Yeah, this is what the devil does. You know, I, yep. uh, you know, that's from Thieves and uh, Thieves, the album Thieves. Uh, so uh, oh, White know. Zombie and Electric Hellfire Club has also taken from that movie. Yeah, so so I guess it's a more influential than I realized. Uh, what were other than the witchcraft movies, Raven? What was your probably standout film, like one you hadn't seen before that really impressed you? Oh gosh. Well, I I watched Hauzu for the first time. So did I. Um, yeah. I really oh. enjoyed that. And um, let's see. Well, one that was one that I keep thinking about is called Inquisition from 1977, and it's written, directed by and stars Paul Nashi. Paul Nashi. 
Uh-huh. And um, it's really interesting because it's supposed to be, I mean, you could tell they're they're going all out with costumes to try to make it look like the real Spanish Inquisition. But then the witches are actually real, and there's all these crazy, like, witchcraft um, seances and, and meetings with naked lady witches. And <laughs> during one of the lines of questioning, this lady is naked on a rack, and um, her nipple gets pinched off by, like, a pair of pliers. And oh, it right. happens so fast. I didn't see it coming. And I, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I never want to see that moment again. Um, but it's still in my mind's eye. And oh, I've never seen any. I've never seen anything like that except I think Herschel Gordon Lewis in the Gorgoro Girls. He cuts off these and then gets white milk from the white lady's breast and chocolate milk from the oh. black lady's breast. And then the scene cuts and you're like, what the hell am I watching? So that's the Herschel <laughs> Gordon Lewis version. This God is bless like some Spanish classified version of that. Um, but it, it really sincerely shocked me in the moment. I gasped out loud and I've seen so many, you know, I was kind of numb after all the witchcrafts. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that one, to to get a reaction after that was pretty impressive. As much as you mentioned the witchcraft series and as much as you came after me for that one, I think she doth, you know, protest too much. I think you might have actually <laughs> secretly enjoyed those. Oh. I, so I no do me, like... No, dude. <laughs> Um, right. That's the part I don't like. We don't get consent until number 14. Uh, there's a lot of rape, and not to say there's not a lot of rape in other witchcraft movies, um, especially before, you know, 1990. But mm. um, a lot of it's incessant and insistent, and you could tell it's written by a white dude. I'm unsure of the actress's ages, and I don't believe the people that say that they're of age, especially when I started reading all the trivia. So it is, I think it's really problematic. Um, I'm fine with having watched them. I'm not going to go door-to-door selling them, though. <laughs> well, that's what I found interesting about a lot of witch, sexy witch movies we were watching uh, is that the gaze is certifiably male. Yep. Even when, yeah. Even, um, even when the woman was the protagonist-antagonist, like in Alicarda, for example. Uh, you know, right. It, 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 it's not seen through the women's viewpoint at all um you know right. uh and not even i would the only ones i think are seen through the wo- a woman's viewpoint and i was so glad to show people this movie was uh 2020's a coven of sisters from basque which is one of the yes. new inquisition movies that is seen through the female gaze and i honestly think it's one of the better films to come out in the last few years and if you haven't seen that it was great. Next few, Go watch this movie. It's on Netflix. It's called Coven, Coven of Witches. Uh, it's it's in Basque, uh, so it's, it's subtitled, but that shouldn't take away from mm-hmm. it. And I would say that the payoff in that movie is not only is it one of the best, like they, the, the, the Witches Sabbath dance that they do at the end, such a wonderful payoff. It's also extremely heartbreaking. Um, and uh, I, I think that that movie made up for me for a lot of the other like, you know, Mark of the Devil is just cruel, like straight up cruel. Uh, and, and, and Vincent Price, you know, I, I would also say Vincent Price 
wasn't even the worst character in Witchfinder General, but boy, is he evil. That movie is definitely very horrible to women. And yeah, he his, said he didn't have a good time people. doing it because it was so dark and heavy. That he is, really didn't enjoy it. That is Vincent Price's scariest performance. Yeah. I, you know, but at the same time, you know, in some ways, I don't mind the Inquisition movies being seen through the male gaze because – in the, it because so this it actually makes them scarier because uh you know it, it's uh a lot of especially like like Vince Price he completely believes he's doing the right thing like this is this is my calling I am rooting these people out and I'm going to make you, you know it, it, it's terrible like in, in Covenant Sisters he thinks he's doing the right thing you know they're like oh we can't save these and that's there's some basis of truth um, if you read some actual depictions of or, or testimonials of inquisitioners uh, from that time period like the one that always stands out to me I read this one about a 14 year old girl okay the girl was 14 he, she, he had pulled out all of her fingernails and had skinned her alive she was still alive um, at the time he was writing it, but she never confessed. Um, and he felt so bad that, um, you know, after doing all these horrible things to her, that he couldn't save her from herself, you know? And, and it's like, really, really, you just skinned a 14 year old girl alive who was raped by some person that accused her of witchcraft. So to cover up his own crime, which a lot of these movies cover. You know, uh, so, I mean, so not all these films were fun. That's one of the reasons why I added the monsters yeah. to it, um, because the monster movies were fun. I mean, I had a lot of fun watching monster movies, revisiting Harry Harryhausen mm-hmm. movies. Uh, I loved making people, because I have a slight, the, the Hauntress does have a sadistic streak as well. I really enjoyed yeah. making, making people watch the, the Sharks of the Corn movie, because it's just terrible. Because, uh, I mean, children, we like, had a children, children of the Corn, oh, yeah. which was bad enough, but then you throw a, a shark in there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah, the children's better with sharks. Were good. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, and aliens. So, and aliens. gangsters. <laughs> and CIA. <laughs> well, Dear all God. the villains. All the villains just Dear come God. all in. Um, so, uh, so this madness was good. Uh, we had uh, 28 players this year, uh, and only one person succumbed. And and it was actually one of the strongest showings overall for all the contestants. No one scored below nice. 100 points this year. Um, Sean Burkay, who's played all 15 years in the madness actually scored in the 500s, which is his best score ever. Um, And he he usually does this by watching the wild cards, things that are related to our our casts and and crew of of our films, but aren't necessarily, you know, it's all the other stuff. And he he actually started watching Charmed, and that, like, totally made up all these points and Vincent Price. I was yeah. really pleased how many Christopher Lee movies got watched this year. Oh my gosh. I I watched so many Christopher Lee movies and on my movie tracker it still says I've only seen thirty percent of his movies. Mm-hmm. He has you can so make it much crazy. 
You can make an entire madness of just watching Christopher Lee. You movie. could, yeah, you yeah. absolutely could. Well, um, I have good news for you, Raven. I won't go into it anymore, but you might want to keep the Christopher Lee track for, tracker for next year. You snap, I will. Yeah. Look, Mark. So, yeah, so keep, ar- keep it around. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I wish I had more time, but actually I did really well in my last week. I got a lot in. Um, That's funny because I watched – I didn't watch as many, like, themed films as other people did. I was watching – I watched, like, the new Scream movie, and I watched uh, 13 Fanboys, which is the uh, meta fan uh, Jason movie starring Kane Hodder uh, and Dean mm-hmm. Wallace. Uh, I watched that, and uh, I, I I watched all my stuff was super random. But then again, I'm also working on uh, com- summaries and computer stuff the whole time. Uh, Wendigos watched a lot a lot of Wendigo films. Was able to expose some people yeah. to some of my favorite films uh, that way. Uh, so it, it was a very good madness. I would say it's a solid madness this year. A lot of work. I'm very tired. <laughs> so. Uh, but uh, it always is a lot of work. Uh, and did I'm I really mention glad. that I? Go ahead. I was going to say, did I mention that I got to meet Bruce Campbell? No. You mentioned I me, got but... to meet Bruce Campbell. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was signing copies of um, a new comic book with Ash and uh, I want to say Easy Company. No, Sergeant Rock. That's right. I haven't read it yet. But um, I, I, you know, for bonus points, I, I asked him if I could get him to say, uh, hope you enjoyed your madness. And I told him, you know, he was always our wild card in, the, in all the years we did it. And I would get all kinds of bonus points if I could record him saying that. And uh, in, in the laconic <laughs> Bruce Campbell style, he said, you're fuck out of luck. Yeah, which made me laugh, and, and I said, "Right on, that's that's totally cool. No worries about it. Thank you very much for the signing." And as I'm turning to go, he says, "You can always tell him I said it," which just made me laugh even harder. <laughs> and uh, so I said, "Right on, thanks, dude." And I, re- without even thinking about it, I reached out to him for a fist bump, and he looks at me for half a second like I'm crazy, and then he gives me respect knuckles. So I got fast, um, an F-bomb, and respect knuckles from the man god himself. Well, it's, uh, you know, I've got, we've gotten Cassandra Peterson to say it. We've gotten Kevin Conroy to say it. Uh, we've gotten, ta- uh, uh, you know, Candyman said it. Uh, so, you know, Tony Todd. We've gotten, uh, I Tony still Todd. have yet to get Bruce Campbell to say, I hope you enjoy it. One of these days. One day. Someday. Uh, I would love that. So... <laughs> It's very difficult to get him to do anything you want to do. I mean, I told you the first time I met him, I told him how many people I snuck into Army of Darkness and goes, well, that's a great thing to tell the executive producer of that movie. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> but, you know, but it's like, yeah, but now they're all fans of yours and they pay for Bubba Hotep. And he's like, fair enough. So, <laughs> you know, so, because yeah. you know, uh, that was when, that was, that was my very first horror convention. And the reason I was there oh, wow. it was my birthday. There was Bruce Campbell. It was cool. But that's, a, that's back in the day. Way back machine, man. Uh, I, I haven't been to a, a horror convention since COVID. 
so I need to go again someday. Someday I'll have the money. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, now I'm going to jump ahead and talk about uh, myself. And Nathan and I did a shit ton of haunts in the um, Atlanta area. Uh, we did a bunch of retro and new screenings. Uh, but before we get to that, Nathan, finally, and he put a button on his horror season uh, Monday. He had a little Lenny app because um, after four COVID cancellations, the horror punk band Blitzkid was in Atlanta. Yes. And so, uh, you know, wh- how was that, Nathan? Well, that was e- – okay, I've seen a lot of shows in my years, and that was – that's definitely a, a top show, if not a top five show. That was such a good concert. Like, I got into them about the time they broke up back to Houston. And so I thought, okay, I'll just never get to see Blitzkid. And then we had the whole, I had the whole, you know, surgeries and couldn't walk crap. And when I got back on my feet, the first concert I bought a ticket to was Blitzkid. They were finally coming around. 20. <laughs> so that was not a good time for concerts. And it got postponed four times. So it finally happened Monday, and the thing was, the crowd there was just so excited that the show was finally happening that it was just the most positive party vibe of any show I've been to in forever. And the band was fucking amazing. Um, I got to I bought the uh, VIP, which was is only fifty bucks, which was well worth it because they they uh, came out and just sat in the middle of the you know middle of the area on a couple of folding chairs, like five from us and played an acoustic set and answered questions and all before the show. And it was so worth it. It was so good. And it was cool because I kind of bookended my Halloween band and weren't able to, because I saw Harley Poe at the very beginning and that was an amazing show. And then since it was the weekend after Halloween, the Blitz kids show was basically the perfect post credit scene for spooky season. And, and I was at the Harley Poe show as well, and that was pretty fun. Uh, I, we also saw, uh, uh, t- was it Twin Temple? Is that right? Twin that, Temple, yeah. Which Twin, is, it, Twin Temple is, it basically sounds like Amy Winehouse singing about Satan. Yeah, it's, if, if Amy Winehouse right is Satanist, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, and and they, did a, they actually did a black mass on stage, and it wasn't fake. I was like, that's real. Uh, and, got the, and got the crowd chanting along. I had no idea what to go along with. Just, yeah, was, uh, that, damn. That was, that was a great show, um, and and the and um, the, the bridge the bridge the city centers opened that one, which they're a I don't know like a call them folk folkabilly they're folk rock uh, kind that of works. you know, uh, but they also sing about Satan. Uh, it was basically if Satan wasn't metal, this is that show, uh, you know, huh. <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, but bridge city centers, I highly recommend them. They were fantastic. Um, and, uh, we also saw Electric Six, which is Gay Bar, Gay Bar, da, 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 Oh, yeah. We saw that. We saw them. Yep. Uh, let's I'll see. tell you, if, we... if you have a chance, if you have a chance to go see Electric Six, I didn't know a lot of their stuff outside of, like, their radio singles, but, damn, they're good live. Like, they impressed the holy hell out of me. They, they were fine. So, if you, uh, have, if you have a chance to see them, go see them. Uh, we also went to several haunts, like I said. Uh, we we saw Hauza in the theater. We saw Slumber Party Mac- uh, Massacre in the theaters. 
we we also saw a lot of new chefs in the theaters. We saw Barbarian, Smile, uh, Terrifier Two, which will we went to the we went to the drive-in. We went to the drive-in and saw one movie and one atrocity that evening. Uh, yeah, we saw the uh, the invitation, which wasn't very good, but we also saw uh, uh, what, Pray for the Devil. Pray for, for the PG-13, Devil. Yeah, it, for PG-13 was surprisingly good, uh, anchored with a really strong lead performance from the girl. There was a, there was a, a devil movie that had a female gaze, and that was unusual. Uh, she actually, it's it's actually kind of progressive. It's about a nun, the first nun who enters exorcism school. Uh, so it, it, it's, uh, it's actually a pretty good movie. I, I liked it. Um, it's, it, is it Exorcist? No, it's not the Exorcist, but you know, it's for PG-13, you know, it, it, I like what Guillermo del Toro says. It's, uh, you know, you, you know, you, you can, you should be able to make a horror film that's scary at a G rating. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. about rating. If you can, it's not what you tell, it's how you tell it, right? So, uh, as Roger Ebert used to yep. say. So, uh, you know, so I was actually pretty happy for uh, the Halloween. And here's once again, I saw Halloween uh, ends, right? I had no idea when I picked Tarot cards to be a top scorer for the madness that there would be a, a quick side scene with Tarot cards uh-huh. in that movie. So it became a highest point value. So, I mean, I, I'm always, like, weirdly clairvoyant when it comes to my uh, 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 choice of madness themes. <laughs> and uh, so um, I wish Halloween Ends was better than it was. Um, I don't think it was a terrible film. I think it was in the wrong order of the trilogy. I think if they took the Cole character, put it at the top, and then, like, reordered the films to where – uh, the ending was the fire. I think that would have made more sense because I see what they were trying to do. They were trying to show the corruption that that Mike Myers over the years had over Haddonfield, which I've always had this question, and I'm going to lay this up to the sexy witches about about Halloween uh, Halloween movies. Okay, Haddonfield gets attacked by Michael Myers. What every two to five years or so, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you still have fucking Halloween? That would be <laughs> um, Because that... Halloween. But uh, nothing I, can I, stop Halloween. I I, I just much like just Michael think, himself. I I just think that you know I I believe me I don't think anything should cancel Halloween. Halloween is my favorite holiday, but and it's a religious holiday for me because I am a sexy witch. But uh, it's. I don't know. If if I knew there was a blood cold killer coming out and murdering teenagers every couple of years, I think I might cancel Halloween. I'd also cut his fucking head off, which he didn't do at the end of the movie. I don't, Raven, though, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a problem with having Halloween. I think the problem is you need to stop transporting him the night before Halloween. <laughs> Still, and my what? question is who the hell taught Michael Myers how to drive? Right? Um, Looney Bin TV. I mean, Maybe. Yeah, all right. I'll buy it. I, I, I still think they Not should cut his fucking know. head off. They, they only cut his head off one one Halloween movie, and that was H2O, which is actually one of my favorites. Um, But, you know, like, cut his fucking head off. He's immortal. That's the one <laughs> way to kill an immortal is to cut their heads off. 
and they just yeah. still won't do it. They still didn't do it in this one. So I guess I think what with the final Halloween movie, which won't be the final Halloween movie, because you know another company is going to pick up Mike Myers and relaunch the series because yeah. they always will because they make it the dough and they're relatively cheap to make. Uh, so uh, you know, kind of fucking head. But I think at this point, it, after watching Art the Clown, which made the the Terrifier two yes. movie made the promise that the Halloween film did not live up to, I think he might have been supplanted as a franchise favorite. There's there's going to be teenagers that went to see Terrifier two. They're going to feel the way they feel about that movie that our generation felt about the first Halloween movie. Uh, you mean like so, the group of teenagers when we went to see it that bought tickets to Black Adam and snuck into Terrifier 2? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I still think maybe about 5% of the total sales of Black Adam, because Black Adam kind of did mid for a, a, a movie, um, went to go actually Terrifier 2. I'm almost uh, positive. But, you know, Terrifier 2 is a Cinderella story. It was made for crowdsourced for $250,000, which is, by the way, $100,000 less than Halloween 1978, just so you know, uh, made $10 million in the box office. So, you know, there you go. We're, we're going to talk more about Terrifier 2 on our next episode. I'm trying to land a guest. Uh, but uh, it was a wild Halloween season uh, on the screen. Uh, my, my favorite walkthroughs I did, uh, we did we did all sorts of, we did two yard haunts and we did Netherworld. I finally made it to Netherworld, which was all elder gods and the full size dragons. And I mean, that was mind blowing. Uh, I have never been in a haunt that heavy designed before. And guess what? It's still open. It's got one more weekend. So nice. I might, I might actually go because I want to go not for the scares. Right, I just want to go see the design again. Um, and on the went, on the other hand, you you have Netherworld, which is you know would you know stacks up against any ride at any amusement park as far as design and budget and everything. And then you have what was probably my favorite of the year, a place called the House of Four Sites. That it's was a volunteer a, haunt. Yeah, it's a volunteer charity haunt, and I kept walking through. It was just these are some of the most simple old trucks, but dumb with enough heart and enough creativity that they work. And I absolutely loved that one. And that was also the one where uh, they had a almost seven foot tall chainsaw wielding clown that uh, the head haunters absolutely loved. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So I actually said before we walked through the haunt that, and I, I'm not a fan of scary clowns in the sense that I actually do wig out a little bit around scary clowns. It's been a problem I had since a kid. Now, it's a childhood fear. I've kind of overcome it. But I was getting burnt out because every walkthrough we did had scary clowns somewhere. Easy to do scary clowns. Oh, wave that at us. Ha, ha, scary clown. Okay. Right? This guy was five, was six foot eight. Like, not exaggeration. He actually was six foot eight with a 15 foot chainsaw. <laughs> what was that? It felt like it was 15 feet anyways. But he came out, and my reaction wasn't to run or or, or scream. I just stopped and gave up. Yeah, she just got this look like, okay, this is how it ends. <laughs> I'm over. Life is over. I'm done. This is how I'm going out. But, but, the, but the maze itself was really neat. It was so simple. All they did was put these orange and white striped canvas 
uh, uh, sheets up, and they had them tied on three sides, and so one side you could push open, and it was a maze. And basically, it was like you were walking through nothing. Like, you could not, it, it, it looked the same in every way, and the, the, the haunt actors were climbing underneath them or looking around them or through holes, and they could hit you in, like, three, four times. And they managed to do something only two <coughs> places managed to do this year. They got a really good scare on me. Nice. They, it, they got a really good scare on a 24-year haunt veteran. That's, that's impressive. I'd like, they get credit for that. A genuine screams. I genuinely screamed in Netherworld because those actors know what the fuck they're doing. I gave up my life in, De- in Forsyth. Um, and we did Paranoia this last weekend, which was its final weekend. By the way, it was like 80 degrees last weekend. Oh, my God. It was so warm. Uh, and there was a guy walking around promoting uh, the, the Christmas version because a lot of haunts are now doing Christmas Krampus haunts. And yeah. he was just as, as uh, Jack Frost, and he had this beautiful coat on. And I was just like, oh, I bet she's dying in there. But I he, got he one looked jet- amazing, but he – oh, he, I cannot – outfit for that as hot as it was but he looked amazing yeah there was there was an animatronic goat which also fits into our theme right um i generally freaked my shit out i screamed bloody murder <laughs> it was nice. yeah oh i i saw a goat sex on one of our movies uh this year called black candles and the, one of the big <laughs> scenes was was a sexual uh, sexual ritual with a goat and I've never seen that before. I've seen sex with goats before in horror films. I know, really, I, I remember these things. Um, Island of Death in particular was a video nasty, but I've never seen it like this before. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but the haunts were very uh, – uh, the only haunt that I didn't like was one called The Village, which had every potential to be fantastic. It was actually so the potential. Yeah, it had the Renaissance, it was at the Renaissance Fairgrounds, and so they were using the Renaissance Fair as a midway, which was brilliant, right? You have your mead and your turkey legs and your vendors, and then you have the haunt to the side, and then the haunt, like the queue, uh, even with time tickets, we still waited an hour, uh, which kind of ruined it. And then, and then the haunt actors were not engaging. Um, they they would they just kind of, there was only two scare actors that were actually really engaging with the crowd in the whole place. Um, and, and it was under designed and I'm like, you have these buildings, what the hell are you doing guys? I mean, I, I felt compared to the, you know, as much as we paid for that one and four sites was a $20 ticket. And I felt like I got more than enough. Um, the yard haunt that we went to, um, done by the silver screen spook show, um, uh, Shane, uh, Shane Morton, right? Is that his name? name That's is? a Shane Morton, professor Morte. Yeah, uh, he, he, it was a, one of those 3D ones where he put the glasses on and the paint and everything of the haunts that we did this year. Um, my fr- our friends did an animatronic haunt. I put that on the web. You can actually watch that one. Uh, you know, it, it, it was, I, I will say, uh, Atlanta throws it down. They do really, really well. Uh, you know, so I've, been, I, I've, been, I've been telling you forever, man. We know how to do Halloween here. Yeah. Um, so... I did a lot of outside of that was really my Halloween this year was outside events. And Nathan got two sets of trick or treaters at his at his house. You know, he's I been finally got trick or treaters. We had trick or treaters in 
I'm so happy. Yeah, because, you know, he moved in here at the height of COVID, so nobody was like, you know, huh? but they came over, and that was awesome. One of the girls looked in, one of the older girls that was taking the kids around, saw Nathan's, like, posters and stuff. She goes, I'm obsessed with your house. And I'm like, yeah, around here, Halloween's every day. <laughs> so, you know, we're year-round Halloween. Um, so that was awesome. So I even got to hand out candy this year. Uh, that made me happy. Um, but it was a very good Halloween season. Now I have I would, to get serious. But I would know, like to mention – Right quick, before we get off the subject of Halloween, I'd like to hear the other sexy witches' opinions if they saw these two. I want to highlight two things that I saw streaming this year that came out during Halloween season that I thought were excellent. One, I really dug the new Hellraiser movie. And number two, I absolutely adored Werewolf by Night. Yeah, I totally Um, agree with you, Werewolf by Night. I saw the new Hellraiser, but I hadn't watched Werewolf by Night yet because it wasn't ATV. But Hellraiser, I couldn't wait for. <laughs> so I, what did you I think? I actually, I enjoyed I it a got long. I to see Hellraiser. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, now, one year during the madness, I did the Hellraiser binge, and um, I think people get kind of snooty whoa, and. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You watched the movies post, like after Bloodline even. And you're yeah. complaining about the witchcraft binge? Oh, yeah, I am. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did dead, the same. Dead, dead World and Deader are both in that list. Yep. Yeah. And witchcraft is worse. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, if they put witchcraft in space, come talk to me again. But, you know, <laughs> in space, there's something different. Um, but I think Witchcraft in Space is actually a full moon movie, if I'm not mistaken. It probably is. Um, <laughs> the point is, besides one and two, the, the rest really haven't been that strong. And I think we forget how lucky we are to have so many horror movies coming out every day now <laughs> instead of, like, once every six months. Um, yeah. That, you know, it's hard to appreciate what we have sometimes. And, and when you look at all of those Hellraisers, this is pretty damn solid. I, I liked it a lot. Um, I thought I wish it, it, it pushed more towards the aliens than the fish. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of pulling away from yeah. the Car- Kive Barker aspects of Hellraiser. But I thought that the mm-hmm. uh, Lament configuration, the puzzle box was one of the more unique puzzle boxes in the entire franchise. Like, a lot yeah. of cool shit was going down with that. Um, yeah, they added a lot and, to the lore of the box itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that was cool. And I liked the lead act. I saw a lot of strong lead female performance in New Film. Hellraiser had a good uh, lead performance. Smile. Fantastic in that movie, and I don't think it would have been as good without the lead performance. Uh, Barbarian had a very strong fi- lead performance for a female. Uh, so, as much as I was bitching about the male gaze of all the Inquisition films, I really do think that this year's horror films. And I read an article saying the reason why so many horror films came out this year is because it was something you could do during COVID, um, and right. it's always a guarantee because. 
the, uh, they did a study a while back that said, what was the one reason why people go see horror films? And the answer was access. We don't yeah. care. If, we ha- if there's a good, uh, or if there's a first-run horror film, most horror fans will go see it. Uh, you know, so right. we're, we're, so give us all props for single-handedly saving theater this year. Uh, you know, we saved the box office in the first run theaters and uh, the retro film selection because ni- of the 40th anniversary of 1982 has been solid as well. I mean, how many retro films did everyone go see this year? I mean, it's it's been wonderful. Uh, so that was really the highlight of the madness was, was seeing how many people were going out, engaging with their environments, doing haunts, going out. I mean, ULA people were, were really throwing it down. I mean, it was coming down between the LA people and the and the um, Florida people. How many haunts they were getting in this year? Um, so uh, it, it, that part of the madness was fantastic, and I had a pretty good darn good Halloween, um, even with starting a new job, and uh, that was you know, and getting and doing that at the same time, which was all pretty crazy. Uh, it, it's it was a very solid Halloween season, I believe. So I'm so glad that I got to share it with all of you. Yeah. Right on. Um, we're almost, uh, our people will be calling in a few minutes. Does anybody have any final thoughts about the madness or, or the Halloween season before we move on? No. No. <laughs> No. All right. So next year, I, I will um, then. I will okay, then. It's it was a it was slightly post uh, Halloween season, but we went and saw Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. Oh yeah, the that's right. I and before that. before the movie, they showed a new Godzilla versus Hedora short. That it was cool. Was, and they made up and it was and the big announcement was. 2023, Toho is releasing a new Godzilla movie. And I really hope that the filmmakers behind that short are the ones because that was awesome. Uh, nice. the, the Hedora Godzilla, that was kind of like my, my final button in the Halloween season was going to see the Godzilla film. But in 2023, brand new Godzilla film from Toho Studios. So something to look forward to for next year, for sure. And yeah, the Hedora cool Hedora's design and they shot it outside instead of on a studio set so the lighting was really unique for a Godzilla movie uh, I, I'm and then they followed it up with 2003's uh, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla which was actually yeah. very entertaining I think I've only seen that one once before uh, so uh it was, you know, and, and my season really, uh, even though he went to go see Blitzkrieg, technically we still have one more thing coming up. Next week, uh, next Wednesday, we are going to see uh, uh, Merciful Fate um, at the Tabernacle, which is an old uh, church that's been turned into a concert venue. So, you know, that's King Diamond. So King Diamond and the most King Diamond you can get in a friggin' old cathedral. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Nice. So it's it's they they just brought all the metal from Europe and hey, here's a good. Uh, 
so um, yeah, I don't know if that came through or not, but with uh, Creator and Midnight are opening for them. So yeah, it's like a heavy European metal extravaganza. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that a lot. You know, Creator is like the German Metallica, so you know it'll be interesting to see that. God damn it, we just lost four to one. What the hell, man? That's my first hockey game of the season, and we're losing big time. Uh, so, uh, but Wendell and Wild, which we're waiting for, I guess, uh, which was on Netflix. Oh, good. Um, and they're fun. Excellent. Uh, so right on time. So let's talk about, we're going to move on from Halloween. And if we have time, we can always, if we forgot anything, bring it back up at the end of the show. Uh, but I also want to say on top of Halloween being fun and all these solid first run horror films and all the retro horror films in the theaters right now. Uh, this year has been fantastic for stop animation. We've had, uh, we had uh, yeah. the Marcel with the, the shell with shoes on. Uh, we have Mad God, which was phenomenal. Yeah. Phil Tibbet Studios. I got to see that in the theaters as well. Um, and, and coming up when the trailer dropped today is Guillermo del Toro. By the way, Cabinet Curiosities rules. But his uh, stop animation, uh, Pinocchio, is coming up. But on Netflix, we had Henry Salzick's first first film in many, many years. And that is uh, a Wendell, at, Wendell and Wild, which was starred Keen Peel, and also has one of my favorite soundtracks of the year. And we are honored to have on the show, thanks to Raven, who's been rocking it with our guests this year. Thank you so much. Could not do this season without you, Raven. Um, please mm-hmm. welcome to the show the storyboard artist of Wendell and Wild on Netflix. If you want to watch it right now, please welcome to the show David Trumbull. Hello, sir. Welcome. You're on with the Sexy Witches. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Hello, sir. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I am so Yay. excited to have you on, sir, and we've all seen your movie, so we can actually act like we actually can talk about it, which is amazing. Uh, so thank you for coming on the show. But before we get into the, the, uh, the creative process of Wendell and Wild itself, I wanted to ask you about storyboarding for a stop animation film, because um, a lot of people don't understand that when you storyboard for animation – um, usually the storyboard is the initial script, and that's usually how the pitch happens, uh, at least in traditional animation. Uh, they come Correct. in with the storyboards and tell the story, um, unlike a, a feature film where you come in with the script, everyone reads the script and decides if they like it. Now, is storyboarding for stop animation closer to traditional animation, or is it closer to feature filmmaking? Uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think the honest answer is that it's much like working on a CG animated movie, except you have to be so much more uh, cognizant of what's going to be built because everything gets produced in a workshop as opposed to in a computer. So um, just a little bit about being a storyboard artist. Um, I always try to correct people when they ask me what I do in animation. Like uh, I'm not just a storyboard artist. It's kind of called story artist because we're kind of like... Oh custodians of the story and we 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 help shape it and we we can add lines add moments add beats 
um, through pitching because we, we get the script, we then pitch a version of the sequence. We're kind of like the whole crew for like a hot minute because we're this sort of skeleton crew doing all the doodles. We pitch it over and over again and we sort of temper it like steel, which, you know, obviously means that some animated movies have better scripts than live action because it's not like the regular studio process where you get one script and then you sort of try to shoot reshoots and stuff. Animation can't afford to shoot reshoots because everything costs so much money. So we make all mm-hmm. of our mistakes over multiple screenings in uh, the story process. And so obviously that helps us, you know, figure out what's working, what's not working, what's going to cost us money, what's going to be too complicated. And then we just refine it over about five different screenings all the way through of the film and then reboard it every time. So by the time you get to, you know, the actual animation side of it, when you're spending all that money, hopefully you've figured out exactly what you want to be on the screen. Uh, But the difference between stop motion and CG is simply that um, perfect example. There's a shot of a bug that goes underneath a larger bug in Wendell and Wilde. Do you remember that moment with Spark Plug where, where the tick falls out of his neck and and oh, uh, yeah. and, and the, the, the tick gets crushed under his feet? There's like this shot that goes all the way under Spark Plug's feet. And you watch the tick sort of like almost getting steps on several times before it finally does get squished. And that was me, like, I think it was only the third sequence I storyboarded on the film. And I was, I was trying to be cocky. I was like, I'm, I'm on a Henry Selleck movie. This is so cool. I want to impress him. And, and I, I grew up with Nightmare Before Christmas and all this stuff. This is like a virtuoso tracking shot that, that is like all the magical oh. moments I, I remember from stop motion. So I, I pitch it, and I feel really good about the shot. And Henry loves it. But then he says, oh, yeah, okay, so we're going to have to build a larger version of the underside of Spark Plug in order to fit the camera underneath. In order, to, and we're gonna to have to make the tick a bigger scale version of the tick. So I realized in that moment that even though I'd gotten this new shot in, I'd basically created a whole new set, a whole new stage mm. for the animators to build. And um, mm. one time I was in Portland, and they took me to see it, and it was literally just the underside of this massive bug, and it was incredible. But it, it definitely teaches you the pen's kind of mightier than the sword in storyboarding. And if you want to do a shot, don't do it for any other reason other than it will make the story better. Don't do them frivolously because you're going to be causing other people to have to work hours and hours and hours to make all these sets. So, so was this your first uh, stop animation film that you boarded? Yes, it was. It was. I mean, like talk about jumping into the deep end, you know, the giant (laughs) stop motion. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm still kicking myself that I'm, you know, uh, the A, that I got to work on this with Henry, but also that I got to work on it uh, in a year where stop motion's having this beautiful resurgence, you know, to think that uh, it's one of four different stop motion movies that have been out this year and actually um, one half of a sort of Netflix stop motion double bill with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, like, what an incredible thing. But yeah, um, I definitely hadn't uh, done anything like this before. And I actually think it's made me a better storyboard artist now that I'm still working in CG back at Netflix Animation. Yeah, so yeah, mm. so tell me about your uh, your background before you jumped on Wendell and Wilds. Where, where where do you come from? Well, I come from Oxford in England. Um uh so so I, I, I basically I weirdly I grew up on the street where J.R.R. Tolkien is buried. Oh, I know <laughs> exactly where that is. <laughs> I, yeah, I on Five Mile Drive, yeah. I went on Yeah, a, a lot Mecca. of people do. Yeah. A and, lot of people it's do, cool. it's a cool place. It's, it's very cool. I, um <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, um, uh, basically, uh, I went to film school, practical film school in the UK, 
And uh, uh, I, I went with my twin brother, Steve, and we've always been able to draw since we were like two years old, but we wanted to work in film. And so we started off going to practical uh, uh, live action film school, you know, working with real cameras and 16 millimeter and using a Steinbeck and all this stuff. We found like the one course in, in the UK that actually allowed you to handle real film and make a short film at the end of the, um, of the three years. But we kind of got spat out of that and made more shorts, but uh, realized that like, unless you major in like, camera department or edit department you can't just walk into a studio and be like i know how to direct because everybody thinks they know how to direct <laughs> so i had this like weird like 10 years in between where i i leant back on my drawing i became a political cartoonist for the sun newspaper back in england i became an illustrator i met my girlfriend and um about 11 years ago we we, we basically started on this thing where i was like oh shoot i i realized that the one thing that combines all of my skills is uh, is animation it's it's filmmaking it's knowing how the camera moves it's knowing how edits and cuts work but it's also using what you've been doing your whole life which is draftsmanship creating characters imagination and so it felt it felt like i kind of got there the long way around because i did almost every other type of storytelling medium i could before i arrived at animation and weirdly i kind of took a leap of faith when i came to this country when i came to america because uh, I was taking a leap of faith with my long-distance relationship because my girlfriend's in Iowa and taking a leap of faith to uh, try and get hired in the animation industry. And luckily enough, like six years later, I'm happy to say both are still going really strong. Oh, I'm glad Yay. to hear that. Um, can you, uh, for our fans, I mean, they could go to your IMDb page, but honestly, uh, tell us what some of your favorite projects before Wonder and Wild was, if you would, please. Okay, well, like I said, I've only been in the industry for about six years, which is actually relatively new. Um, but um, uh, the first movie I, I worked on kind of came and went without any fanfare. It was a movie called Ugly Dolls, which was a very sort of like sort of derivative studio-based sort of product-based movie. It was directed by Kelly Asbury, who directed Shrek 2, and uh, he, he now sadly passed away. But it was, it was a project that like when I first got it, I, I was going to take anything. And uh, it was this movie that sort of like, you know, it wasn't Pixar, it wasn't DreamWorks. But then, weirdly, by being on that film, the head of story on that movie took me with him when he got the chance to work on Wendell and Wilde. So I ended up working on, on this incredible artistic movie by an auteur after doing, like, the, mo the most derivative cash-in kind of product-based movie, which is kind of how animation works. But in, in between those projects, I've done some work for Robert Rodriguez down in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, it's Trouble Maker Studios. I did boards um, for some of his uh, projects. I think I worked on We Can Be Heroes, which is one of the largest movies in Netflix uh, in the kids' uh, genre. And, uh, and I did some work on his Spy Kids reboot that he's about to bring out with his son. And, I was going um, to ask that. Did... <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, his son's actually a really cool guy. It's the Shark Boy and Lava Girl kid who basically he wrote that really crazy oh, story really? with his dad. Now he's grown into a whole man, and he's like, he's a really, really cool, charismatic dude and a very talented filmmaker. <laughs> so, so it's funny because now they're making Spy Kids, but they're making it together. Um, I think really the thing I'm most excited about now is what I'm doing after Wendell and Wild, which is that I'm working currently on the animated Roald Dahl adaptations that Netflix animation is doing. Yay. So that's kind of that does sound exciting. Uh, so, uh, so how did you get involved with Wendell and Wild, and what was your relationship with Henry Solnick himself? I mean, it, it, he's Ooh, kind of a hero a in my world. <laughs> 
what an expensive question. I mean, that, that's been the strangest thing about the movie being out is people tweeting at me like I'm some kind of like, – like I'm anybody. It's like, no, I'm Henry Selick, somebody. So I'm just someone who's very lucky enough to work with him. Um, the way I got onto the film was, uh, like I said, my former head of story on the last movie I did took me with him and a couple of the other artists uh, when he got the chance to work on it. And um, and so so I think it was a very strange experience for me because – he was such a giant of my childhood. And uh, so I, I think the first few sequences, I actually did a sequence that was my audition piece. Um, before I'd even gotten the job, I boarded a whole sequence from the movie. Um, I don't know if you remember, it was the sequence in the classroom where Kat steals the bear from under Manberg's nose. Do you remember that scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so that sequence I actually boarded before I knew I had the job. I actually did it. They, they gave me just that one scene, and I and I basically boarded it in three days, like my life depended on it. And I just thought, if I don't get this job, then at least I know that I boarded for Henry Selick once in my life, and 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 I can always take that with me to the grave. Um, and then basically I submitted it, and Paul said he was going to show it to him in a few days. I submitted it to him, and then like the the next hour he called me back and said, Henry loves it. You're on the film. So uh, it was like this crazy thing and uh, very anxiety-inducing, like, oh, my God, I'm working with this guy. Um, and, and Henry's a very mercurial type. He's, he's, obviously, he's a genius. He understands stop motion and animation better than anybody, um, and he has a very specific particular process. And Netflix Animation, to their credit, really allowed him to make the movie that he wanted to make. Somebody described it online. I think my favorite review of it is uh, that it's Henry Selick let off the leash. You know, it's, it's, it's his mm. mind completely on the screen. It's the stuff he cares about. It's, it's, it's the characters he cares about. And it's a very specific tone. Um, and, and so working for him, I was like, well, I know he's a very specific guy. And, and um, I don't presume to have like a close like, relationship with him. But there was this moment like about halfway through the production where Henry hadn't made a movie in over 10 years because he, he, the last movie he'd made was Coraline. He tried to get something made with uh, Pixar and it hadn't gone anywhere. And so now he, he, he had been given this opportunity to work on this movie and you could tell that he was making it like, like his life depended on it too. And um, mm. uh, obviously that, there was a lot of new technology. We work on uh, digital uh, Photoshop and, and, and uh, on, on a program called Flix. So it's a, a bunch of stuff that back when he was making stop motion originally, the story process was like you put everything up on a corkboard and you pointed it with a ruler and things. And so he was initially kind of distrustful of, of some of the technology that we were using. But there was this beautiful moment about halfway through where you realize that this technology enabled him to be even more persnickety, uh, which is, you know, for an auteur is brilliant. Like he's a, he's a perfectionist. So he's, he suddenly was all in on it. And by the end of it, he understood the programmers better than we did. And uh, huh. there was this point after I finished working on the film, I'd actually left the production and started working on the DAR project. I got a call from the production saying um, that uh, there was this one sequence. Do you guys remember the Redemption Chamber sequence? Yes. So, yeah. so spoiler alert, like this is a sequence that happens in the movie. If you haven't watched the movie, there's a sequence called Redemption Chamber. I'm not going to give much away, but it involves shadows on a wall. It involves memories and shadows of these characters that, um, that, uh, that the main character, Kat, uh, experiences from her childhood. And, uh, and it's all about her overcoming her memories and her trauma and her demons in that sequence. And I had boarded it all the way through production. Um, Cecile Carr, another brilliant storyboard artist, had also done a pass on it. But Henry got me back to do some final boards on it because it was going through animation. But then at the same time, um, you know, 
this movie has some incredibly distinctive designs by uh, this incredible Brazilian caricaturist called Pablo Lobato. He's incredible. I hope he wins the Annie for animated character design because he's exceptional. These incredible 2D angular faces. And so he'd already finished designing all the characters, but they hadn't designed the shadows that were going to be on the wall. And um, I'd already drawn the characters on the wall in my storyboards, and Henry had really liked them. And Henry's the kind of mind who, you know, he, he doesn't just go through, through things in an orthodox manner. He was like, why don't we just get David back, get him to design those characters instead of getting a character designer to do what I'd already done. So he got me back on the movie, and, and I spent two weeks designing um, these shadow characters in detail. And it was no longer with the story department, and it was just me and Henry doing Zooms like for like two weeks and just chatting and him sending me artwork and us going through it like bit by bit, character by character. And it's just really, really surreal for me because I already felt like I'd had a brilliant time on the film. Like I, I ticked it off my bucket list. But uh, in, the, in those final weeks when I did those character designs, it was just spending time with Henry and Natalie Carroll and a few other people. And it felt like I had just made like a little short film with him, you know? And, and yeah. in that time, I feel like I got to know him just that little bit better. And um, when I saw him at the rap party, there was just so much affection uh, between us that we, we'd made it through. And he was like, what do you think of that sequence? He, he knew how much it meant to me that I'd worked on it. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll take that with me uh, forever. Um, that, that, that those, like, two weeks where it was just me and Henry, like, creating these characters. Man, what a trip. Uh, I... I... <laughs> I don't know even know how I would not be able to like not fangirl around him to be honest with you. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know. He's a cool I, dude. Uh, he he's a very interesting dude. I I've never gotten to meet Henry Selick, uh, Selick, but um, I do have a small connection to Nightmare Before Christmas because mm-hmm. I grew up in San Francisco, and my, a friend of mine, Jin Rizika, ended up marrying Eric Layton, who was the animated supervisor on that. And they met on nice. the set. Uh, so, nice. um, so that was, and, and on the Nightmare Before Christmas set, there was a big sign that said, no whining on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I remember mind-blowingly being told that they shot five seconds a day. And that was it. Yes. Um, so, because how long did this actually process? Because it sounds like you were there for a good majority of the time. How long of a process was it to actually get this from your storyboard to uh, final edit? Um, I think it took, I mean, I can't give you the exact numbers because I can only speak from my own experience on the movie. I of spent course. about a year and a half working on Uh the story but but as the storyboards were going through there was a point about halfway through in which they started animating and then i think it was about another year and a half after um uh that starting point that they finally finished all the stop motion animation it was it was insane that there was a period where we were still working on act three but most of act one was animated and so we would see (laughs) these rushes coming down the pike these incredible shots and so we'd be able to watch screenings in which half of the screening like internal screenings with the crew half of the screening was still our boards but the first half was like you know these puppets doing these incredible things and it was like oh my god we're actually we're actually working on this thing this thing like i was saying to seema verdi who was another fantastic story artist on the film who also voices the character of slowed one of the rbc girls um, she was like the ultimate uh, Selick uh, fangirl herself. And so for her to suddenly be working on it and also voicing a character, it was crazy. But like, yeah, we would have these moments where we were like, wow, um, stop motion is so painstaking and time consuming, but, um, but it's all worth it because 
Selleck had this thing that he loves to say about stop motion, why he loves it as a medium. He said it's an art form that's already old to begin with. So, you know, you can, you can innovate in it. You can add technology to make it better. But the thing he loves about stop motion is that it's, it's tactile and real. And really, the medium hasn't really changed since its inception. You know, like um, the human eye can tell when something has been actually photographed, when you're actually looking at a real model. And so the same reason why Douglas Trumbull's visual effects in like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner still hold up today because they are uh, models. Um, model shots. It's the same reason like uh, that uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, castles and all these things still look incredible. It's because the human eye can tell that they are actually physically real and have been physically photographed. And stop motion is the same. You know you're looking at, at uh, something that's not really alive and yet it feels more alive than, than a real person. Um, yeah. It's because your eye is still trying to figure it out. Um, uh, movie making is kind of like a magic trick. And I often try to explain to people when, I'm, when I tell them why I love animation is because I feel like, you know, when you, you finally find out how a, a magic trick was, was pulled off, it suddenly ceases to be magic. I feel like animation is a magic trick, but once you learn how they did it, it somehow becomes more magical. Um, and stop motion is the ultimate because it's the road absolutely least traveled upon. It's so complicated and so difficult that it's all the more rewarding when you see that magic on screen. You're basically yeah. echoing what I heard Ray Harryhausen say in an interview. He goes, the reason why <laughs> his, his work is going to hold up is because your brain tells you you are looking at something real on camera. And you're, when you're looking at something CD, especially something like liquid, for example, Absolutely. It doesn't yeah. look, it, 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 your brain tells you it's not real because it doesn't mm, flow with yeah. the frames per second. Uh, and that's why his movies will always hold up. Matter of fact, we just binged. Ten of Ray Harryhausen's films for the Halloween season, so we have oh, amazing, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, so uh, you know he's kind of a hero of mine. I've been a huge fan of stop animation since I was a little girl. My whole family were, uh, you know. Absolutely. Matter of fact, my first film I ever saw was King Kong. Uh, you know, which was yeah. only six frames per second. I'm assuming that this film was at least at 24. Um, so yes. that being yeah. said, it's interesting you mentioned that, um, Henry would actually, uh, work with the animators to draw more attention to the fact that it was stop motion. Sometimes they would drop a few frames, uh, from the animation in order to make the shots a little bit jankier so that you could see the stop motion so that you didn't miss it. Because I mean, it's, it's the same reason why the puppets, you still see the, the join lines on the 3d face replacements. You see this line across the eyes on the face which is basically where you take the face off every frame and replace it with a different 3D printed face. And Henry, you know, was used to, when he worked on Coraline, Leica wanted him to CG out that line so that you wouldn't ever have the, the spell be, be broken. But he insisted upon keeping it in on Wendell Wild because he loves drawing the, the, the audience's attention to the fact that it's, that it's a model and that it's stop motion. Because he's like, what's the point of spending all this money and making this incredibly difficult thing if, we're not, if it's going to be indistinguishable from computer-generated <laughs> animation? That yeah, being said, I'm sure Ray Housen would have been excited to have the cameras because the one thing that he hated the most is he would have to move the maquette, go move the yeah. camera, take the shot, move the maquette, and and on and and nowadays you can actually pre-program the cameras to move ahead of yeah. time and concentrate on the models. I'm sure he yeah. would have enjoyed that more, but uh, but <laughs> yeah. still, it's still painstakingly slow process, but 
a fantastic one, and I will always admire the time and energy it takes to do something like that. Raven, you sound like you have a question. Go ahead. Oh, um, I was just thinking about uh, all the technology that Harry Hosen would probably embrace now, such as 3D printing. Um, (laughs) That would be epic. Um, So I'm going to work on some necromancy. But beyond that, I was thinking about, I I think as a theater kid, and um, a lot of times when you're in a production, no matter how strong the table read is, you really can't tell if something's going to be good until, like, right before you open. (laughs) And Mm. half the time you're going, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if this is actually good. And the other half you're going, this is really good. Um, Was it working with Henry, was it immediately like, oh, no matter what, it's going to be awesome? Or did you have any moments of, oh, gosh, what's this going to turn out like? Do you have any fears? I'm really glad you asked that um, because uh, um, animation is is a very strange uh, vocation because you're basically making something in the dark over a long, long time. And so, you you, you know, you're watching screenings and you're, you're, you're watching it come to, to life and, and you've had a visceral reaction from the script or from the concept artwork and, uh, and, and you know the ingredients, but, but you don't know what people are going to make of it until it, it, it's shown. It's almost, like, uh, it's almost like making it behind a curtain and then you have to sort of voila it and then you feel incredibly vulnerable. <laughs> you know? um, um, what was interesting was that um, when, I, when I read the script, I knew it was Henry Selleck. So, so I knew that it was no matter what happened, it was going to be a singular experience in my career um, because nobody makes movies like Henry. Nobody has Henry's specific idiosyncratic vision. And um, and it, it's funny because like Guillermo del Toro is releasing what looks like to be an, inc- uh, an incredible masterpiece with with uh, with Pinocchio. Um, and so I, I'm sure it's going to be tempting for some people to like compare those two movies because they're the two Netflix stop motions. But it's like. The way I was thinking about it, I was talking about it with Seema. I was like, you know, I don't go to a Guillermo del Toro movie for a Henry Selleck film, and I don't go to a Henry Selleck movie for a Guillermo del Toro right. movie. <laughs> Ultimately, there's no point in – because the one thing I see on Twitter when, I, when people are – animation Twitter is crazy. You know, with, uh, so many hot takes, so many points of view. And you see people, like, comparing which was the best animated movie of the year and talking about a movie like Turning Red by Domi Shi, who is an incredible mm. top-tier Pixar movie. But it's like, why would you ever compare – Turning Red right. with Wendell and Wild, the two aren't even in competition with each other. You, we should all just be happy that we get to work in this field right. and see all of these incredible masters making this impeccable sort of like curation of the medium. And so, right. so yeah, um, I was, you know, obviously feeling an awful lot of imposter syndrome. You know, I'm a story artist. I'm always going to put lots of pressure on myself. And I wanted to be proud of my contribution to the movie. And I also know that it's a movie with an awful lot of big ideas in it, and it's not going to be a movie that everyone's going to vibe with. You know, it's a movie with a lot of stuff to say about the prison, you know, school to prison pipeline, yeah. uh, uh, conversations about inequality and representation, and really, really proud that it's the first uh, trans mask character in a stop-motion animation. Uh, yeah, and in animation yeah. in general, you know, save for something uh, like Dead India. And, um, you know, all of those things... Any, any one of those things might not play with one viewer, but would be absolutely the world to another. And so when the movie came out, I saw a five-star review on Letterboxd, and then I saw a one-star review on Letterboxd, and that just immediately released me from any anxiety. I was like, okay, if, if, if two people can have such completely different views, the movie spoke to one person and it didn't speak to another. But ultimately, 
I think I think ultimately my experience with the movie is is that I will always love it because of the experience I had with it. But I'm just incredibly grateful that stop motion exists on a very long timeline because there's so few of them. It's such a rare thing. Every time a stop motion movie comes out, it kind of automatically has to stand the test of time because it took so much to realize and there's so much in it, so much texture. And I know that this is a movie that not only is it going to continue to delight people, but it's also going to be a movie that people will look back on and will, will grow and, and then have a life yeah. beyond. It's almost like uh, like the reanimated corpses in the movie. You know, it's going to be one of those movies that, that will constantly be brought back from the dead every every Halloween, I hope. Well, mm-hmm. and, and speaking of long periods of time, uh, did you happen to catch Mad God? Oh, I have not. That is on my list. It's the, it, that, that is the movie that I'm most interested to see other than Pinocchio, because one of my friends who, who's working on uh, my current project worked on Pinocchio. But yeah, Mad God, I mean, Phil Tibbet, absolute legend. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's on my list, but, but I, I've been too busy making stuff at the moment to, to, well, to get around I, to I'm it. Curious. And it does not seem like the kind of movie my girlfriend will sit and watch with me. <laughs> so I'm going to have to find the time <laughs> to watch it like a sicko in, my, in private. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you were saying about comparing movies, and I would honestly never honestly compare films. But at the same time, I actually did make a line from Mad God to Wendell and Wilde because they're both about images of hell. And one of the things yes. that they both do, and I'm curious once you see it, you should let us know, is it, it, hmm. the, the, the images of hell are very different. One is like layers of hell, and you're going deeper and deeper hmm. and deeper, while yeah. uh, Wendell and Wilde is on the torso of the devil himself and is a hell amusement yes. park. But they both do the same thing. They take the souls of people and just treat them like trash. Like they just throw yeah. them down thing holes, catch them on fire, uh, you know, whatever you want to yeah. do. And so I guess it's just a coincidence or maybe it's a sign of the times that everyone was thinking about how hell <laughs> life is hell. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, so I, I wish you'd seen it cause I would love to hear your, as a, as a storyboard artist, hear your, your, your viewpoint on that one. But, uh, well, was yeah. that, but as on the hell and Wendell and wild, was that your concept of hell or oh, how did that concept of hell as being in an amusement park on the torso of the devil himself come to be? Cause it's a really okay, interesting so idea. Can... I can take no credit for Buffalo Bells' incredible BDSM uh, screen fair um, uh, outfit that he wears, essentially. He's basically <laughs> like, one of the things that's been so delightful over the last few weeks has been all the first tweets about Buffalo Bells. Like, <laughs> Buffalo Bells is awakening things in people that they may not have even known were there because he's so good. And it doesn't hurt that he's voiced by ving rames the love god you know it's like he's got the voice <laughs> but no um, so so um that idea was all from henry uh, uh henry had had this idea of hell that it wasn't souls of the damned it was souls of the damned and it, it's funny you mentioned the layer right. of hell he viewed it as a he views it he viewed it as a a, a, a a level of the underworld that above the truly horrible people it's more like souls of the damned you know um uh, whilst I did not design the screen fair, I did board that sequence going into the screen fair, and one of my ideas did end up in the screen fair and did have to be built, which was the the teacups that pour boiling tea onto onto souls. Love like the teacups. And that, that was crazy. I was like, oh my god, they, they, I drew it and then it exists. That's the crazy thing about stop motion. Um, but. To, to, to basically touch upon what you said about Mad God, I think the thing that will be fascinating for me is 
what it's achieving with the story. Because ultimately, people get into the weeds trying to find internal logic about the law of the, of, of the underworld in Wendell and Wilde. But really, when you look at it on a story level, it's just talking about uh, hell on earth and hell below um, and about the prison system, uh, about being trapped mm-hmm. in uh, a cycle that we have to break. You know, um, you know, if you look at the storyline of Belzer and his screen fair and his magical haircut, then it seemingly doesn't make any sense. It's just Wendell and Wilde live in their father's nose and they want to make a screen fair. And they want to make it better than their father's. But it doesn't make sense until you look at the real world story up above, which is that Kat is this kid who's been in juvie her whole life um, because of a tragedy. And then she's she's been rinsed through the system and she's gone to this Catholic school trying to break the cycle. But really, she's in a cycle that will never, ever end unless people stand up to the, the school's prison pipeline. And so the, the, the underworld story is more like a, a sort of a farcical mockery of, of something really serious in real world that's happening in the lives of 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 the real world people, you know, um, Wendell Wilde are also in a prison system and they want to innovate it and make it better. They want people to actually enjoy being at the screen fair. And so their amusement park as silly and sort of facile as it may appear is actually sort of like a, sort of like a, a fun house mirror to something d- deeply serious. That's really what Henry wants to talk about. So when I look at Mad God, I think I'm really curious to see what Phil Tippett has to tell us about our notions of hell. <laughs> It's very bleak compared to the Wendland Wild, but we won't go there right now. Uh, but uh, I want to throw it out to my two very quiet uh, male sexy witches. Does my uh, Aaron or Nathan have anything they would like to ask our wonderful storyboard artist here? Actually, I have a couple of questions. Um, sure. First of all, you, a lot of times you hear people talk about doing long-term creating a story like you know making a movie or storyboarding a movie or something like that that one particular character will like really resonate with them and they'll really enjoy creating for that character was there a character like that for you in Wendell and Wilde? Absolutely and I'm so glad you asked that question um, because uh, one of the massive draws for me uh, coming onto this movie I mean the the beautiful thing about this movie is it's a murderer's row of an ensemble. Like every character is so completely distinct. And so I had a pleasure boarding any, all of them, to be honest. And Kat obviously is incredible, but like, um, you know, speaking as a, a, a straight white cisgendered dude from, from England, you know, like uh, Kat's experience is very different to my own. That being said, um, the character of Raoul, uh, when I read yeah. the script and I realized that there was a trans boy in the story, uh, it, it took me back to when I was in college. My best friend in college uh, was a trans boy, um, uh, I, and I, I witnessed his whole uh, his whole journey of discovering who he was, realizing um, um, what had to happen, and then everything that he went through to be accepted. Um, I saw that in real time over the four years that we were in college together, and uh, and so consequently. Uh, it made Raoul not just a, a great character to work on, but also fundamentally important to me uh, because um, when I was, and I actually lived with this guy. Uh, we were we were housemates when we were in college, and he had this, you know, he was still figuring out his identity, but he had this DVD shelf. I'll never forget it, and it was like better than chocolate, tipping the velvet. But I'm a cheerleader. Like every queer piece of media you could possibly imagine was on this DVD shelf. And he basically curated everything he could possibly find in, in our modern storytelling to try to tell him who he was, to try to figure out, like, am I represented somewhere? Do I have, am I not alone, you know? 
And mm-hmm. it makes me emotional now thinking about it. Like, Raul is a character that my friend needed back then. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, there's obviously a, a debate out there as to whether or not it's a, a, a good thing to, to, to show representation to children of, of that manner. I can't imagine it's anything but a net benefit to our audience to represent the world mm-hmm. as it is. And to show people that they're not alone, especially at a young age, because children are like sponges. They, they, they soak up everything without judgment. And um, so as an animator working in a children's medium, we have this profound responsibility and, and privilege to, to, uh, to, to show representation. And it, it's not just cat, it's not just, um, you know, different ethnicities and, and diversity, but it's also the spectrum uh, of, 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 of gender, of sexuality, and, and just Raul is, is so wrapped up in that. And so, I mean, I boarded the sequence where he's on the roof painting his mural. And I just love that he's a character whose uh, transgender identity is not actually the thing that defines him. What defines him is that he's this sweet-hearted artist whose art melts the heart of a demon. You know, like, like that's what storytelling needs. It needs us to have this diversity and have this representation. But that representation is not the only character trait that that character has. Raul exists now, and so I just feel so grateful that I was just a small part of bringing him to the audience, especially to trans men and women out there who, who badly needed to see that. Did you, sneak any little, did you sneak any little pieces of your friend into him, just kind of as a wink-wink, nudge-nudge? Um, I think whatever I did was subliminal, because obviously I want to tell the character that, that Henry wants, but obviously both uh, are trans boys and, and they both look actually incredibly eerily similar, which is kind of the crazy part. But, you know, um, just, just in general, um, I can't really claim any specific detail except for the fact that every time I bought him, my friend was in my head, you know? Nice. Well, my other question is, holy shit, this movie has an amazing soundtrack. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. At what point in the uh, at what point in the creative process did that music kind of come in? Like, were you guys listening to it to get you know the mood of the movie down, or did it they find music after you had done the art to kind of fit the mood? Like, where does that come in? Okay, so that's a cool question. Um, obviously, a lot of it was already locked in um, in Henry's mind from the beginning because you know uh, he he had decided very early on in collaboration with Jordan Peele that the cat's character would have a connection to her father, uh, Delroy, through the Afropunk music scene. Um, and so that was threaded into her character design, threaded into her boombox, Cyclops, and then obviously yeah. that, that filtered into uh, uh, the soundtrack, which obviously is just in- incredible uh, sort of like uh, earworms that's going to get a whole new generation hooked on Afropunk music and stuff, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and spe- specifically black alt movement music. Um, but uh, uh, what's interesting is that um, not all of the songs were completely locked in. And in fact, when Karen Tolliver became uh, the new head of Netflix animation this year, she actually helped them get rights to the songs that they hadn't uh, been able to acquire when they didn't have uh, as much money. She, she gave them a bit more money to find some of the songs that they wanted. Um, I can claim one tiny involvement in one of the songs in terms of the story process. Uh, which I almost shudder to say because it's like so much of this stuff was very, very, you know, comes down to Henry. But um, you know the sequence where Raul is with the parents and then they get kidnapped? Um, th- he's listening to a vinyl yeah. track in mm-hmm. the house. Okay, so that's, that's freaking out by death, right? Um, uh-huh. Obviously, if you're looking at the history of the Afropunk movement, you can't not hit death. You know, you've, you've got to you, 
that album is incredible and and so I, I had fallen down the rabbit hole of listening to that whole album in my preparation for Wendell and Wild. Um, because, nice. you know, you want to stoke yourself up, especially if it's not your, your, you know, your world. You want to just dive in head first. And so we knew in the script that he had to be listening to a record. And um, because I'd been listening to it, I basically just put the Death album into the board. And uh, when I pitched it, Henry was like, oh, I love that you put Death in there. That's great. Um, and, uh, after, after that meeting, I actually was like, just sort of like, sort of, sort of slightly tremulously sort of sent an email going, Oh, uh, if you're at all interested for a track that would work from that album for this scene, I think freaking out is pretty cool. And, um, and so very randomly the next time the screening happened, freaking out was the song. And like, I'm not, I'm not going to take credit for it because I, I'm sure that every decision went through everyone, went through Jordan, went through Henry. But yeah, that, that was one instance in which uh, something that I boarded, you know, I, I put one of the songs into it and it is in the soundtrack now, but you know, it's, it, it's neither here nor there. Cause so many, so many voices and so many notes and so many different fingerprints end up on a shot or a scene before it ends up on the finished uh, screen. That's funny you mentioned that particular moment. I remember when I was watching it at that moment, looking over at uh, the head haunters over there, going, "Oh my God, they put death on here!" <laughs> that was it's like, so cool. It's so like, cool. Awesome. Uh, and then, yeah. of I mean, course, like Exo Specs, TV on the radio, and yeah. Sorry, go ahead. A bad yeah. rain. Uh, you know, and X-ray uh, specs, man. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, yeah, no, uh, that that was actually uh, it's actually my favorite thing about the movie. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of crazy, but. The, the soundtrack, I, I'm so excited, and and also the whole my my um, my 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 child went from Lillian to Levy a couple of years ago, uh, so uh, to have and she's they're only 13, so to have representation at uh, that age matters wow. to me a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I don't know if they've seen it yet. I got to make sure they do. Uh, so well, that you. means a lot to me. Um, I really yeah. hope that they do uh, uh, enjoy it. And um, yeah, God, it's crazy. Um, it's been it's been a real uh, uh, strange experience to like be checking on Twitter and like people will be saying how much something means to them, or that they've watched it multiple times. You know, th- th- mm-hmm. those are things that you you know you only hope that you you strike a chord with somebody and that it resonates. And like I said, we make these movies in the dark. So it's very gratifying to say the least. Uh, Aaron, do you have anything for our guest? Yeah. I, well, first off, I have to say that I really enjoyed it on a number of different levels. I'm a huge fan of Henry Selleck's work and I actually got to meet him uh, prior to Coraline when he and uh, Neil Gaiman were doing a signing at Comic-Con. And I mentioned that I was a huge fan of these bumps that he'd done for MTV way, way back when, Slow Bob in the Underworld. Uh And he turned to Neil Gaiman and he said, oh, that's right, I have to send those over to you. And Neil turned to him in the most nonplussed Neil ever. (laughs) and said, well, I'll just look them up on YouTube. (laughs) <laughs> it was such a wonderful little moment between the two of them. Um, I, I am a political junkie, so I really, really enjoyed the message and and the vibe underneath everything, as you alluded to with the, the prison industrial complex, which yeah. makes my blood boil. Um, I kind of have a question <laughs> along those lines. Um, Mr. Claxton reminded me of a couple 
political figures in his design. No. And I was wondering if you were prepared to confirm or <laughs> you deny. You say, who? Who could you possibly be? Um, it's fascinating because obviously no. David... <laughs> so, so, yeah, obviously there's a lot of um, undertones of... of, of, of... It, it's weird that we now exist in a world where both an American president and a British pr- uh, prime minister have had the same haircut and have been associated with the same level of oafish populism. <laughs> it's kind of yep. crazy. Yep. It's like you can take your pick. It's like, um, who, who is uh, Lane Claxon uh, um, uh, representing? Take your pick, really. It's, um, it's, uh, it's like a Rorschach test. If you think it's Trump, it's Trump. If you think it's Boris Johnson, then it's Boris Johnson. I think it's Boris Johnson because he's British and um, and yeah. Boris Johnson has the same air and the same kind of scruffiness of his hair that uh, that, that lame exemplifies. Um, David Harewood does a fantastic <laughs> job uh, uh, doing his voice as well. He's he's, he's phenomenal in it. Um, yeah. and, and you're right. The, the whole message about the Claxons is that you know, I mean, this is a story about demons, and everyone expects the demons to be the antagonists. And uh, it's, a, it's a movie with so many decoy villains. Uh, uh, I, I won't go into all of them in case um, uh, there are people out there who haven't watched the movie. And, and if you're listening to this, please do go enjoy the movie. It's, it's buried in Netflix because of the algorithm. But, like, go, go and find it because it's got so much cool stuff in it. But, so yeah, um, you know, the thing that I loved about the script was that uh, truly irredeemable characters <laughs> are, the, are the prison fuckers. You know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah. And uh, it, it, it exemplifies a sort of uh, resistance punkiness that Henry has always had in his life and that his children have had um, even before Jordan Peele uh, came along and ad- added his self on the story. I mean, I think the thing that I would describe the movie as, because you guys have been talking about the soundtrack, you guys have been talking about the message, you've been talking about how kind of crazy it is. And I, I think the best way to describe the movie is it's like a scrappy punk song of a movie. You know, mm. it's, you'll yeah. go there, you'll be discombobulated and you'll be spat out the other side, but it's an absolute trip. And it's, it's, it takes you to this place. There's, um, there's a, a, a word that I absolutely love, and I use it all the time in animation when I'm trying to describe how an animation sh- should make someone feel. Um, let me just try to remember what it is. Uh, it's, um, oh, oh, yeah, it's um, anomia um, or anomic storytelling. Uh, anomia is, is, uh, is a word that means nostalgia for a time that you haven't lived in. Um, so uh, a good example of that would be something like Stranger Things. You know, not everyone who watches Stranger Things was born in the 80s or, or you know, grew up with analog VHS tapes and Ghostbusters posters and things. Yet you watch the movie, uh, um, um, you know, uh, that show and, then, and, and the music and the synthiness and all of that soundtrack and running up the hill, and you still feel like this nostalgia for this time that you didn't live in. Um, you know, mm. I mean, that happens all the time in animation too. Like Marcel the Shell with shoes on feels like a time – it feels like a time of claymation of like Morph and Wallace and Gromit and Gumby uh, um, that a lot of people didn't grow up in, but it, but it just gives you this feeling like, like you lived it somehow. And I think Wendell and Wilde is going to be beautiful for the music scene, the Afropunk scene, and for, for stop motion in general, because there's going to be a whole generation of kids who are going to watch it who are going to be like, fuck, this music slaps, man. This is like... <laughs> and, and, and they're going to feel like they lived in that time, and it's going it, to... The thing I feel when I... When I watch it, is it's a punk song, but it's also it's going to instill nostalgia for punk that people didn't even know they had. And there's always right room on. for more nostalgia for punk, for sure. I mean, really, seriously. 
Uh, you know, I, I grew up in San Francisco <laughs> Bay Area, so Dead Kennedys and, and 45 Grave were very much part of my growing up, but not everyone <laughs> was exposed to that stuff. I am the same age as the Stranger Things kids, though, so I did grow up in the 80s. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> I, I was a 1986 kid. Kind of a 90s yeah. kid, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely, you know, I definitely understood what a pencil and a cassette tape were supposed to be used for. So, so what do you have in the future? What is, uh, what are you looking towards? Uh, are you working on something now, or are you uh, wanting to do, or do you have any dream projects you would like to work on? I certainly have dream projects, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, right now, I'm very lucky to be still working in Netflix Animation on the Roald Dahl adaptations. I'm working on one particular feature based upon a Roald Dahl book. Roald Dahl, obviously, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and all this stuff. Um, uh, uh, very famous, but there are quite a few. You know, Netflix has now acquired the entire Roald Dahl uh, story company, so they now have access wow. to everything he's ever written. Um, and um, so I'm currently working on an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book that has never been adapted before. And so that's really a really cool thing to be like, oh, wow, this is a book I grew up with uh, back when I was a kid, listening to it on an audio cassette tape, you know, to, to speak about nostalgia. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's a book that gave me nightmares. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it, whenever I think about it, it takes me back to that time, that age. And so to, to know that I'm going to be working on the very first time a lot of people will have, have encountered these characters on screen, you know, that's, that's really cool. Um, uh, story is a very, very interesting job because it's kind of like the front lines of telling the story in animation. You, um, no other um, role other than like the director uh, and, and the editor uh, have such access to every other department and such an understanding of how the rest of the pipeline operates because everything you do ends up being uh, addressed by all of these different departments. And, you know, so um, it's no coincidence that a lot of story artists end up uh, becoming directors in animation. So that's obviously something that one day I would like to do if I felt like I had a story worth telling. But um, yeah, I, I'm going to have to borrow from a, a friend of mine, Sharon Bridgman, who's another exceptional story artist. When I asked her if she ever wanted to direct something, she, she gave the best answer, which is she said, well, I'm already in my dream job, you know? And, and mm. so weirdly, I, I was like, you know what, you're right. I mean, working in story is, is, is you get to influence the narrative, you get to add your things. Um, you don't have quite the same pressures as being the director, being the person behind it all, but you could be in the cinema or watching at home on Netflix and see something that you know is in the movie because you drew it or because you contributed it, you suggested it. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an incredibly addictive, joyous feeling. Uh, so so it, even if my career never progresses beyond this point and I just continue doing what I'm doing right now, I think I'm going to be happy. And Henry, uh, I know, would love to resurrect some of his projects. I don't know if he wants to remake uh, his failed production of The Shadow King. He now has the rights back. And he also spoke yeah, he about wanting to make Neil Gaiman's Ocean at the End of the Lane. So um, oh I'm very lucky to have, I'm very lucky to have cultivated a bit of a, a bit of a connection to this guy. And if he it, if he called, I'm sure it would take an awful lot to to stop me from from jumping back into that madness with him. Right on. And, uh, uh, there's I mean we could talk about stop animation probably till our heads explode on this show, uh, but we're running out of time. It's almost time to sign off for the night. So. Uh, Go ahead. I was just saying that flew by. That was really fast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so <laughs> because I don't shut what up. Would, so what, <laughs> was, what would be the – no, it was wonderful. Uh, what would be the one thing that you would like people to take away 
uh, the most from watching Wendell and Wilde. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, but there must be something personal besides your wonderful story about your friend, which obviously was very personal. Uh, uh, What's the one thing the most you'd want people to take away from this film Uh, and, and, and bring and bring into their own lives and and uh, I know it's hard it's a weird question but you know there's so much no, going no, it's, on it's here. A, it's a wonderful question and I do have an answer. So um, okay. uh, <laughs> I think that one of the things I, I mentioned that I worked on the Redemption Chamber sequence with the shadows, uh, cat story mm-hmm. because there are so many moving parts in the story, not least Wendell and Wild, of course, and like he and Peel being you know bring in the the, the vocal stylings. This is really Kat's story, um, and she's, she's this incredible um, uh, exploration of grief and survivor's guilt, um, and, and she's caught in this system, this cycle that needs to be broken, that speaks to a much larger, more endemic problem within our culture and society. But when it all comes down to it, even if you're a young viewer watching it and all of the stuff about the prison industrial complex goes over your head – um, the thing you do take away from it, which I really hope people do take away from it, is Kat's journey of self-acceptance and self-forgiveness. Um, because, you know, in that sequence in the redemption chamber, she sees all of the uh, traumatic events that shaped her into the person that she was and got her into this, 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 uh, this sort of grief-stricken, sort of like um, armored warrior who doesn't let people in. And um, we worked on that sequence relentlessly, uh, all of the board artists and Henry, to try to refine it. And it, it went through several different permutations before we ended up with what you see on screen. Um, and uh, we also talked a lot in the crew um, uh, about internal family systems and about shadow work and about uh, speaking to your parts, um, uh, having a dialogue with aspects of your personality that maybe are negative, uh, but you can speak to them in a more positive way. You sort of like you can interface with them and say, okay, I understand that you protected me at this point. You defended me when I needed you, but right now you no longer serve me and I thank you for your service and I relieve you of duty. And that's a very powerful thing to do and it's a very healthy thing to do mentally. So um, we had that in our mind when we were looking at the Redemption Chamber and we were looking at Kat's journey as a hell maiden mastering her powers. And throughout the, throughout the movie, she has this... Um, this burgeoning power as a hell maiden that's manifesting throughout the story in little tiny glimpses, which is that she starts to see the future. She starts seeing what's going to happen a few moments from now. And then as, as, as she gets stronger, she starts seeing further and it all becomes about changing the future. Um, but really it's more of a story metaphor. Like I said, everything comes back to story. It's about looking forward rather than dwelling on the past. It's, you can be held back by your guilt, by your trauma, by the things that have shaped you. But if you can come to terms with them and live with them and embrace them, and, and uh, in, in the same way that she embraces her memory, she also embraces Wendell Mark, her demons. Embrace your demons. Embrace the things that protected you when you were defenseless. And then decide that you're in control of your life and you can take it from here. And only then is your power unlocked. and You can see the future and you can make a better future. And so it's like, you know, obviously this is a goofy-ass, crazy movie, uh, but that, that message has always been in there from the very beginning. And I was so grateful that I got the chance to work on that sequence, to work on Kat's uh, um, story and her arc. And I, I think that that's the most universal theme that's dealt with in the movie. It's, it's not just about breaking cycles of, of inequality and oppression. It's also about breaking the cycle of suffering within yourself and forgiving yourself and becoming more powerful because of it. And I just think that's a beautiful message and children everywhere can benefit from it. 
Um, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, this has been wonderful. And we will, I mean, I'm so excited that this film exists because we need, uh, like, a, not in the themes. Stop animation is my, one of my favorite mediums of all time. So that you're contributing to that is a great honor, sir. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> well. I don't know how I did it. it, so so I'm I'm as I'm as I'm as bewildered as all of you. I I don't know how I got got this lucky to work on it, but I'm not going to stop now. So thank you. No, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop, never stopping, as they say. <laughs> so uh, lonely island. Uh, so we we're gonna go tonight. Um, because this is we're out of time. Can you believe it? It's funny because I I Man, outro crazy. one one of the songs from the show from the movie, uh, and I you, all the songs we mentioned all came down like we meant Nathan and I mentioned every single one of the songs that you mentioned on the show, but we ended up deciding instead of those songs because honestly most of the songs for my audience is probably known death and bad brains and all that. But so we're going to play uh, rot in the Doghouse" by pure hell as we leave tonight. So, uh, which is also <laughs> from the soundtrack and it's on Spotify folks. If you don't know about um, the entire Wendell and wild soundtrack is on Spotify. If you want to listen to it. And of course the movie itself is on Netflix. And once again, thank you, sir. We're going to, um, our next show is sometime in December. Uh, it'll be our best of 2022, and you'll probably come back up again. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, the, yeah. The best. Um, and uh, we, we're going to outro out. It also happens to be, coincidentally, Stranger Things Day. So wow. thank you for bringing that up, oh, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, everyone... <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Mr. Trumbull. Thank you, Raven and Nathan and Aaron for always coming on the show. We will come back in about, I would say, three or four weeks. It'll be after Thanksgiving to talk about that and uh, Krampus and all that fun because, you know, we are horror geeks after all. And um, so we're leaving tonight with Rot in the Doghouse. And uh, everyone's going to, sir, you're going to have to hang yourself up because it never lets me hang you up. I don't know why. Thank okay, that's fine. Thank you very but, much. And thanks so thank much for you. having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. It's been a joy. And good night, everyone. Good film hunting and blessed be. We'll come back in December. Right around Krampus Knot, probably. And uh, <laughs> have a have a listen to a piece of the Wendell and Wild soundtrack, Rot in the Doghouse by Pillar House. Good night, everyone. Night. Night. Good night.